Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. I'm Matthew Epinet, Executive Director of the Center. For our first episode of 2021, we're going to explore moral distress and moral injury, pressing issues that arise in the midst of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. You'll be hearing the audio from one of our plenary sessions at our most recent annual conference, which we titled Bioethics in Real Life, Lessons We're Learning from COVID-19. Speaking of our annual summer conference, early bird registration is now open for our 2021 conference, which is entitled Bioethics and the Body. It will include plenary addresses from Johnny Erickson Tata, Beth Felker-Jones, Christopher Ralston, Kimball Cornu, Jeffrey Bishop, and others. The conference weekend, June 24 through 26, will also include a number of professional workshops and parallel paper presentations. In addition, several academic courses will be available before, during, and after the conference with graduate or undergraduate credit available through Trinity International University. The conference dates are June 24 through 26, 2021, and it will be presented online. Now, there is a possibility that we'll be able to host some attendees on campus in person. A final decision will be made at a later date, but the entirety of the conference will be available live online, even if a few of us are able to gather here on campus. For more information about our Bioethics and the Body Conference and to register for the conference, early bird rates save you $50 and are available until March 1, visit cbhd.org and click on Conference at the top of the page. As I mentioned, this week's episode deals with moral distress and moral injury. As the pandemic continues, it, of course, weighs on all of us in many ways. Frontline healthcare workers, however, are confronted with particular difficulties. The concept of moral injury originated in the military and warfighting, and bringing these concepts over into medicine and healthcare provides a vocabulary and conceptual tools that help us to understand and begin navigating specific kinds of stress experienced during the exceptional difficulties arising out of the current situation. Our speaker for this episode of the Bioethics Podcast is Dr. Joseph Wenica Leiden, who this summer moved from the University of Pardubice in the Czech Republic to Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Here is Moral Injury in the Time of COVID by Joseph Wenica Leiden, PhD. Uh, so today what I would like to do is talk a little bit about moral injury, this concept, and how it connects and intersects with the pandemic we are uh, currently experiencing. Now, it's never easy to navigate the moral challenge inherent in, in one's everyday work life. But in times of emergency and pandemic, such challenges can be so severe that it can feel as if they overpower your very sense of self. The suffering and the moral challenges all around you can start to weigh on your soul. The current COVID-19 pandemic is one such crisis, the most alarming in living memory, um, at least in the United States, and at least in terms of its, its global sweep and its uh, socially transformative character. Already articles and studies have begun to assess the psychological impact of the pandemic on healthcare professionals and patients. One term, however, moral injury, as I've mentioned, um, which has not really appeared much in healthcare literature or bioethics, has become more marked in both journalism and scholarly reflections of the crisis. Originally coined to describe experiences of soldiers and veterans, 
moral injury points to the way in which one can feel like they're no longer able to strive and be a good person because of what they have done or failed to do in wartime. And I get this language of striving toward goodness uh, from uh, moral philosopher Julia Annis's discussion of uh, virtue and virtue ethics. Although I am hesitant to join others in calling the pandemic a war, uh, as there are important differences, and so not joining in calling healthcare professionals uh, soldiers or warriors on the front line of the conflict, the high-stakes situations, the resource depletion, depletion, and challenges that healthcare workers are facing do create serious life and death situations, and they do strain one both physically and spiritually in a way that one could rightfully say is injurious to one's character or sense of self. Although used to describe experiences of the present pandemic, um, we will begin seeing this term used more and more um, as we go forward in the coming years after the pandemic to describe experiences whose moral valiance, other, wills, other well-used terms such as post-traumatic stress disorder do not seem to fully capture. Regardless, there are currently a number of articles trying to explore the experience of the pandemic through the lens of moral injury. In doing so, uh, they take on the assumptions of the literature in uh, psychological studies of wartime experience. Uh, they also then reflect some important literatures of those frames. And in particular, what I want to discuss to say, today is they, they kind of um, take on a reticence to address broader politics, both in terms of policymaking and the politics of the wider culture that condition and shape experiences of moral injury and, when, and in which such experiences are inevitably embedded. During normal times, uh, such a broader political analyst, of course, may not be always necessary to understand moral injury in a healthcare setting. But the current pandemic, however, has from the start been enmeshed with political debates and discourse. Such questions have been raised about the pandemic and how political decisions affecting readiness and capacity, um, as well as ignoring the advice of healthcare workers and epidemiologists, have increased the severity of the crisis. There is the ongoing debate about the performance of national, state, and local political leaders and their responses to the pandemic. And of course, there's the larger political activism and even protests around the pandemic and policies adopted to respond to COVID and its spread that have politicized a crisis already political in itself. And this isn't even talking, um, addressing the current Black Lives Matter and I Can't Breathe uh, protests that are occurring and that come in the wake of COVID. So in this way, such a pandemic is not simply a matter of medicine, but is inherently political. And so the experience of healthcare workers during the pandemic has also been shaped profoundly by politics on many levels. In the following then, I make an argument that moral injury used in bioethics and broader healthcare ethics, including medical ethics and nursing ethics, may not only be not helpful in articulating the experiences of professional healthcare workers, but may also be a challenge to current frames, not only in the way that moral injury is applied within bioethics and related fields, but also to frames such as moral distress that are more common in healthcare ethics, and even some of the assumptions of the self uh, that are used in medical ethics, healthcare ethics more broadly, and bioethics. I argue that just as in moral injury research that comes from wartime experience, there's an important lacuna around where broader politics are not adequately considered when trying to understand the experience of healthcare workers. This is very important, 
that such a deficit might lower the efficacy of using such a concept, and also skew our understanding of the nature of lasting moral harms that come from such crises, such as the current pandemic. Now, moral injury is a relatively new concept in healthcare studies and related ethics. Uh, indeed, it is a new concept in general, having been coined by Jonathan Shea, a psychiatrist who worked with veterans, um, and he coined this term in the early 1990s. Shea developed this concept while working specifically with U.S. veterans of the wars in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And what he argues is that there was a form of harm veterans described that went beyond post-traumatic stress disorder. While post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is seen as an experience of violence that affects one's everyday reaction to events and stimulus, moral injury was coined to express a feeling of guilt, shame, anger, um, even failure concerning one's participation in violence. Uh, PTSD is categorized specifically in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in, Violence five, in, in Volume 5, published through the American Psychiatric Association, as a stress-related disorder arising from witnessing, hearing about, or experiencing a traumatic event that results in reliving that event, uh, avoidance, uh, including avoidance measures, mood changes, hyperarousal, and hypervigilance. Moral injury, on the other hand, is often differentiated from PTSD, um, even though there are differing definitions, and we'll get into that a little bit, on just what moral injury is and what the relationship to PTSD might be. Indeed, there's actually an ongoing debate of whether moral injury is a kind of PTSD or whether it should be completely separate. Um, and for Going forward with this, I am going to look at moral injury as, as something distinct, though the way I present it doesn't mean that it doesn't have relationship with PTSD. Um, so in general, uh, where PTSD describes a con cognitive and emotional disorder that responds that can respond somewhat, given the cases, uh, to what are now traditional treatments, moral injury gets at an even more amorphous claim, namely, as Shea describes, as the undoing of one's sense of self, or even their character, um, their moral ability, and their worldview. Now, specifically, there are many definitions of moral injury currently debated, as I said, ever since Shea coined the term a little under 30 years ago. Um, Hodgson and Carey, for example, in their article, Moral Injury and Definitional Clarity, uh, Betrayal, Spirituality, and the Role of Chaplains, a list 12 definitions as of 2015, and we could include many more besides. Overall, however, there are two seminal definitions of moral injury that have developed and that really other definitions take their cue from. Um, and you'll see this if you go through the literature when people are talking about different definitions or whatnot. You can see how they're grounded in these two um, seminal uh, definitions. And the first is uh, Jonathan Shea's definition that has been influential, especially in the humanities, um, and in fields such as sometimes in social work or in other um, fields outside of psychology where scholars have attempted to engage moral injury through their particular disciplines. Uh, specifically, Shea argues um, in the early 2000s that moral injury arises from when there has been a betrayal of what's right, specifically in the soldier's eyes, so kind of a subjective understanding by someone who holds legitimate authority, usually he's thinking here, in the case of veterans, he's thinking of officers, in a high-stakes situation. 
The emphasis for Shea is on a sense of betrayal, and the commission of moral injury comes from the institution of the military of chain of command. So the moral injury is actually begin is, is coming from, um, you could say, superiors or the military chain of command, and um, that is then pressed upon soldiers. And it's where soldiers feel specifically that their trust in leadership has been undermined in a context where one's life and death or the lives of others are on the line. Now, the second definition originated uh, quite not too far, uh, not too long ago in 2009 by an article by psychologist, uh, psychologist Brett Litz and his co-authors. Uh, this definition has been very influential in, um, in some humanities works, but especially in psychology and the behavioral sciences. Uh, Litz and his co-authors argue that moral injury arises specifically from discrete moments or events that are sometimes called uh, moral, morally injurious events. Um, and that these potentially morally injurious events, uh, specifically such as perpetrating, failing to present, or bearing witness to acts that transgress, the, specifically the soldiers' deeply held moral beliefs and expectations, that may be deleterious in the long term, emotionally, psychologically, behaviorally, spiritually, and socially. This definition does not emphasize either betrayal or the institutional context of the military chain of command, at least the formal definition. Um, definitions that have come after have, have tried to bring some of this language in. But instead, here we see the soldier is both the location of the moral injury, so the person who is injured, and also the commissioner, as it is the soldier who violates her own most deeply held values. So it's the soldier's injury, the soldier's values that have been violated, and also the soldiers who, whose actions have um, made the injury possible. High-stakes situations are not emphasized either. They're included, uh, but as one can also get moral injury from just seeing the aftermath of battle, including seeing dead bodies or even handling remains, um, it's a much more capacious definition than Shays. Uh, for these reasons, for these definitions, I've referred um, in, in some writing uh, to these definitions as the first and second wave understandings of moral injury, respectively, as there is the shift in the, the Litz definition to a broader understanding, one that is not focused on the context of the military hierarchy, one that focuses on psychological research norms, whereas Shea draws a great deal from the classics and the humanities, importantly for what follows, and turning away from seeing broader politics as central to understanding the cause and nature of moral injuries. Now, if we kind of giving this, uh, this background in moral injury and how it's developed in psychology, we can return to healthcare ethics and in health and in particular nursing ethics, um, where the vocabulary over around the same period of time as moral injury has developed uh, has been slightly different, uh, and also the emphasis uh, on some form of moral harm uh, in nursing health and healthcare ethics developed and focused more on moral distress and moral residue instead of moral injury. And we'll see kind of right now what those differences are. The idea basically is, uh, is that working in healthcare ethics, uh, the, the idea of moral distress is that Working in healthcare ethics in healthcare creates situation 
situations where one sense of right and wrong can interfere with what the workplace requires. Um, so basically, somebody might, a nurse, a chaplain, um, even a doctor, may feel that there is a course of action that is the right course of action. Um, but because of the institutional nature of the hospital, or because of norms or policies, um, or because of their position in the staff hierarchy, um, they cannot, um, their understanding does not win the day. And so at least originally, moral distress was somewhat a critique of bioethics and what was seen as philosophy's focus on moral dilemma in discussing moral challenges in the workplace. Um, and moral dilemma being looked at that you have, ver you have different options, none of which really necessarily seem good, and you have to take one of them. Uh, moral distress being actually that you feel that you already know what the action is, but you can't take it. Now, as helpful as dilemma can be for framing problems for courses and ethics, and as helpful as it is for some situations as dilemma occurs, moral distress looked at the way in which nurses in particular, uh, particularly uh, may already know what the right course of action is. Um, if this kind of distress continues um, because of uh, poor communication management, inadequate resources being available, again, the policies and po politics of the institution, it can, be, it can leave what they call a moral residue, something lasting. So the emphasis in general then was not just the difficulty of moral discernment, instead moral um, uh, distress and residue wanted to communicate the difficulty of being a moral agent within a professional institutional context. Um, or so much the ideas of the problem of moral clarity as it is moral agency. So going now into similarities and differences between moral injury and moral distress uh, would take me a bit too far afield. Uh, I have to save that for future work. But one thing to point out, however, is the importance uh, not to pathologize what can be a very healthy, even necessary moral reactions to situations, which um, more, the language of moral distress does bring to this discussion. Indeed, um, as Farnsworth et al. have um, argued, uh, in their in their paper, and I'll I'll give you a reference to this shortly. Um, painful moral reactions can be seen actually can actually be a healthy response. They don't always need to be seen as injurious. Um, conflicts will inevitably come up and will inevitably challenge one's moral worldview, as well as the norms of one's profession or institution. This is actually a reason why in ethics around um, conflict and peace building, some of the language has changed from conflict resolution to conflict management to kind of acknowledge the fact that college, uh, conflicts do happen. They're going to happen. They happen all the time. And it's not so much that you want to stop them, prevent them, um, or end them. Instead, you want to manage them in a way where people can go forward um, and, and hopefully flourish. So such moral distress need not be seen as inherently negative then. Indeed, pathologizing it can send the wrong message. Uh, that such forms of distress indicate a lack of resiliency on a part of the individual, or that even something is wrong with the individual, when moral distress can actually be a signal that um, something is wrong, not with the person, but with the situation or with the institution. So moral distress can actually be a healthy and even a rightful, sometimes righteous, um, signal to, to a moral agent. So um, Farnsworth and his uh, co-authors reserves moral injury then to be um, an expanded social, psychological, and spiritual suffering, 
stemming from costly or unworkable attempts to manage, control, or cope with the experience of moral pain. So they kind of add this layer to the moral injury language that somewhat reflects uh, some of the language and framing that has happened in healthcare ethics around moral distress and residue. Now, this is only one approach to bringing together language distress of language of distress and injury. Um, but even though it's helpful in this way, it too shares uh, in a common assumption throughout the literature on moral energy, energy, uh, <laughs> energy, moral injury, and the literature of moral injury and the pandemic that has since arisen. That is an assumption. That assumption is an individualist one. In most of the literature, moral injury occurs when a soldier or an individual violates their own values. Again, here the commissioner and the object of the injury is the soldier, the individual. Or such injury occurs, as with the Farnsworth article, when someone does not have the wherewithal to resist normal distress becoming long-term abnormal injury. None of these approaches intend to stigmatize the individual in framing injury in this way, Yet focusing on the individual as both the origin and location of the injury can result in such stigma, even inadvertently, because we're not just talking about physical wounds. We're speaking of character, of virtue, and of the violation of what should not have been violated. We're using evaluative terms, and so we have to be very careful that the evaluation does not um, uh, unnecessarily or inappropriately um, be used to evaluate the individuals negative, negatively in terms of their character, their ability. Uh, here too, with uh, Farnsworth and his authors, their framework, the discussion of moral distress to moral injury reflects medical diagnosis frameworks that look at disease as either acute or chronic. And it goes without much, it, this happens without much critical reflection whether such a framework can and should work for injuries that are best described as moral or even spiritual. This is very important because the context within which moral injury occurs, either in the war zone or if we are to extend it within healthcare contexts, are very complex. One's everyday life within military or healthcare institutions, um, though different in many respects, is still embedded within hierarchies managerial and staff structures and informed by norms, policies, or, and precedents over which the individual may have very little or no control. And there are, there are since we're dealing here with, with health care um, and life and death and well-being, there's a strong moral dimension um, to these institutional policies and arrangements. One is not always in charge and perhaps one is rarely so. The sense of goodness, of right and wrong, that not only comes from one's upbringing, but also from the professional values one is internalized in becoming a nurse, a doctor, a chaplain, as well as a soldier, are not always prioritized by one's leadership or by official priority, by uh, official policies. One's own values or moral worldview or the norms of their profession can come up against other values, such as the ongoing health of the organization, or in war, the overall strategy of victory. Um, and this can include in a pandemic, the overall strategy to try to um, get through the pandemic. Although hospitals are not war zones, even when we compare them metaphorically, there is this shared tension between moral striving of individuals and the ongoing needs and politics of the institution. And although hospitals not found in the war zone may rarely encounter the conditions of war, they are still institutions who deal in matters of life and death where stakes can be quite high. 
Helpfully, these issues of institutional culture, management structure and style, and even politics are addressed in certain understandings of moral injury and the moral distress literature. Shea, for example, looked at the experience of veterans and saw a running theme of betrayal. Indeed, one of the main characters, uh, characteristics of a soldier's experience of Vietnam, one brought to the fore through both memoir and fiction and documentary over the decades, was the feeling betrayal by off office, uh, um, feeling of betrayal by officers, who some soldiers thought were more concerned with their careers or their own safety over that of their soldiers. Um, or of leaders who put them in positions where they had to actively participate in betraying their own sense of right and wrong. Shea saw this feeling of betrayal and how it ate away at the soldier's sense of their own moral self. It was this relationship between leaders and subalterns, um, not just officers and soldiers, but even political leadership within the chain of command that made such injury possible. It is specifically as a soldier, soldier and in relationship to one's institutional context where such injury occurs. Uh, similarly, the moral distress literature focuses on specific healthcare sites and potentially distressing situations that can arise within those contexts. So it's focused on the institutionality of the moral distress. The sources of such distress may vary, of course, and Epstein and Delgado, in their overview of the literature, gave several sources uh, for distress, going to issues of continued life support, um, having to give false hope to patients and families, or not realizing at the time that you were giving false hope, um, inappropriate use of resources, inadequate communication, um, inadequate pain relief, inadequate staffing, as you can see. Um, things that will make people feel that they have been neglected, that perhaps they've been betrayed, perhaps they've been lied to, um, perhaps not given what they needed in order to meet the standard of care that they believe um, was essential, not just for helping someone, but essential to being a good person or a good healthcare worker. Central to all of this really is a sense of powerlessness, a lack of agency, of the ability to be a moral agent, who acts on what they think is right and wrong, and how that powerlessness happens within institutional relationships. Uh, healthcare workers can feel that they no longer have the ability or power to strive to be a good person or to try to uphold their identity as a good person um, or as one who could try or strive to be good. So if we think, if we are to think of the individual and their embeddedness in various moral ecologies, we can think then of concentric circles spreading around them. We can see the individual and then around them their home life and other areas. But if we were to look at their work life, we can see them embedded in a broader social, broader social sphere of their profession and of their institution where they work. And this is, this is overly simplistic. It gets very complex, right? But it does help just to give us a visual guide for where I want to go next. Uh, if we look at these circles in which the individual is embedded in their moments of moral conflict. The literature discussed focuses just really on the person as a part of a larger ecology of their immediate institutional affiliation, both with uh, the moral distress literature in general and, as I said, in, in Shea's and Litz's definition. What becomes evident then is how the rest of the community or even society which also deeply affects the individual 
and their work-life context is not really taken into account. So for example, to get what I mean here at this kind of broader circle in which all of this is embedded, if we return to the seminal moral injury uh, uh, definitions of Shea and Litz and, and Litz's co-authors, we miss again this broader picture, uh, specifically in the definition put forward by Litz and his co-authors, which has been, again, foundational, especially for clinical psychological research, the context, either of the war zone or deployment back home, is assumed. Even so, very little time is spent examining or privileging the institutional context as a factor in moral injury. It's kind of put back in the gra uh, background. It's not privileged in, in the formal definition in their analysis. The focus instead is on the transgression that the soldier herself commits against her own moral code. This code is no doubt influenced by shared military moral codes, uh, but this is not something that's really taken up in the formal definition. It's mentioned, but whereas in Shea, Shea takes very seriously the, um, the military hierarchy and those codes, um, they're not quite as focused on uh, as, as the source of the, the, the larger military being the source of the moral injury. Indeed, there's no reference to the very difficult moral situations created by being in an institution whose mission is to implement militarized foreign policy, policy that's often decided on by others. And here again, we're getting this, um, this recurring theme of, of power, powerlessness and agency. The focus is on the individual soldier, what they did or did not do, what they saw or did not see. Other possible salient facts, such as the overall perceived justice or injustice of the war, um, bringing in as just war theory here, how perceptions of the morality of the war, um, its conduct, could affect how the soldier understands the morality of their conduct in the war, is not privileged either. So these kind of... Um, categories that you see in just war theory of Usad Bellum and Usain Bello, of the justness of, of the war going into it, and the justness of the war as it's um, conducted, and which is very important and very um, influential on soldiers and how they see themselves in the war, is not really seen as, as, as a central possible source for moral injury. Shea, on the other hand, um, is a bit more complicated um, on the one hand, he defines moral injury, particularly in his later work, as taking place in the context of the military hierarchy, as I've mentioned. Um, indeed, the cause of moral injury is laid not at the feet of the soldier or her own actions, uh, the soldier as a moral agent, but at the feet of officers and even the culture of the military hierarchy in general. It is the health, we could say, of that hierarchy, an institution that affects the lives of soldiers deeply, that is the cause of the injury, or at least necessary to the injury, if not entirely sufficient. On the other hand, Shea also wants to cast moral injury as a timeless issue. In his first book, Achilles in Vietnam, where he really introduces this concept of moral injury to a wider audience in the early to mid-1990s, he explores Homer's Iliad as a source for understanding this new concept. So he looks at the example of figures in the Iliad to, to show that they were actually suffering from moral injury. Now this can be very helpful in that soldiers can reframe their suffering as something that all soldiers, even the bravest, have faced throughout history. This can be helpful for soldiers in, ver in, in various ways. It can help them push back 
against the stigma that so often adheres to soldiers who suffer psychological traumas by reframing mental health disorders as, as, as um, experiences on par with more heroic physical traumas. So making something like, um, calling it a moral injury, putting it on par with those red badges of courage. It can also help by removing responsibility for the injury from the individual soldier who's suffering, as such injuries are presented as part and parcel of war itself throughout time. The issue is, and at the same time, this move dehistoricizes moral injury. The command hierarchy of today's military is very, very different from the hierarchy and cultural of culture of fabled epic Greek myth. Although it is important to explore whether such harms as moral injury appear in other contexts and other times, this move by Shea does create a tension between the timeless transcultural understanding of moral injury that he argues for with his emphasis on moral injury arising from a specific and quite modern command and control military hierarchy. Now, more important for my purposes here is how this transhistorical, transcultural emphasis on moral injury can unintentionally elide the specific politics that surround and penetrate any particular war conflict. Quite rightly, there are always tensions during times in life and death between subalterns and their superiors, even in an epic Greek warrior um, culture. And Shea has insight into how this relationship can give rise to moral injury. He does not address, however, how the specific politics of the time, how the broader trends of culture and public opinion also factor into how soldiers and others view the justice of the overall war strategy and conduct. How does politics understood not only in terms of policy, but also the politics of one's society, one's culture. Um, we can think today of the, the culture wars that are happening in the United States and have been for decades. How they affect the ways in which soldiers understand the war, their participation in it, and whether or not what they're doing is for a just, unjust, or questionable cause. This is particularly important for the wars being fought under what before the Obama administration was called the Global War on Terror. Some veterans who are arguably morally injured have pointed not just to their own actions as sources of their moral injury, nor even only to the military hierarchy, as one would expect um, uh, from Shays and would expect from Shays' understanding of such moral harms. They also point to a culpability they argue that the broader society shares, where society itself has allowed or even supported what the veterans in question have come to see as an unjust war, or even allowed. Um, so you can kind of see here a reflection of that understanding of moral injuries, what one has done, not done, failed to do. See here, looking at the um, society of what society has done, not done, or failed to do in terms of this unjust war. One soldier, for example, Mark Louisel, uh, a U.S. Army platoon leader in Iraq from around 2003 to 2006, uh, reflects on his experience this way. Um, his experience both during the war and the subsequent occupation, saying that it made him feel like he had become a bad person because of what he did and his participation in the war. The moral injury here can kind of be summed up more succinctly as because of what he did or not did, what he saw, he came back feeling he was a bad person. Now, Louisel does not absolve himself from any sin. Indeed, 
Saying that he feels like a bad person is not only a signal of possible moral injury, but also shows that he feels a keen sense of responsibility uh, and agency in his experience in the war. What is interesting is that he sees his responsibility as shared with his larger society. After saying how the war was not worth the lives, as we see here, um, he then incriminates his larger uh, uh, culture at the bottom of this quote. And he says, we talk about the superiority of our culture, and he's talking here about the United States. But then we invade their country and set them at each other's throats like animals. The implication being here is how superior can a culture be if it invades countries and then makes people act um, in inhuman ways? Whereas the, how, how moral can such a culture be? Now, one need not agree with his sentiments or with similar sentiments of other veterans to see the broader politics that someone like Louisa L. is gesturing toward. There's a dimension of moral injury here that is central to, to Louisa L.'s suffering and is not quite captured in either Shea or Litz's definitions. He is referring to a cultural narrative where his society sees itself as better than the country they are invading. On top of the policies that made up the war, there's also a sense of politics that conditions and gives rise to his moral injury on the broader society-wide level as well. So we can kind of see this, this larger concentric circle of context that he is gesturing toward and maybe helps us see. Now, and this, this is getting to bring this back to the pandemic. Um, I wanted to set up a bit um, to talk about moral injury. In, in the literature that's coming forth, a, a lot of these details of moral injury, its complexity, um, the differing uh, definitions and the arguments about what is morality and moral injury, what is injury and moral injury, a lot of this isn't necessarily reflected in a lot of literature that's taken up outside of psychological studies. And that in the tech, then the um, articles that are starting to appear, this complexity is definitely not reflected. So I wanted to give some time to kind of set this up and set up what I see as a shortfall of how moral injury has been defined and framed. And then also now at this point, I want to show you how that is actually um, taken on a bit uncritically, at least with um, some of the first articles that have that have come out of the pandemic. So we can see this in the recent literature on moral injury used to describe the pandemic. Um, one important article that I'm going to focus on um, by uh, R.D. Williams and co-authors, they argue rightly uh, that the pandemic has increased the possibility for moral distress in hospitals. The authors acknowledge issue, they also acknowledge issues of racism, healthcare policy, and provision in general, and the larger structural constraints in which healthcare workers do their jobs. So they're very aware of, of the, this, this broader, uh, the broader social issues that impact healthcare. Their focus, importantly, in this article is how people can get through, specifically healthcare workers, can get through the pandemic without becoming morally injured which is a very, very important thing, and it's good to see this discussed. So what they advocate for is psychological first aid, and they detail actions to create and promote, quote, safety, calmness, connectiveness, self-efficacy, and hope, unquote, within healthcare settings. So for example, when discussing how hospitals should create a sense of safety, they describe how this should be done in, um, in pre-pandemic times. 
The actions include, uh, quote, psychologists can disseminate resources to assist patients and colleagues, as well as model healthy sleep, proper nutrition, regular exercise, and stress management techniques. They can engage individuals who are struggling in brief problem-solving exercises, unquote. They also argue for mindfulness in the face of, pandemic, uh, in, of the pandemic to help instill calmness. The responses the authors detail, however, um, they strike me as somewhat weak, or at least much weaker, than the authors themselves would want to offer. And this is because the pandemic, of course, has created constraints that narrow the possibility for implementing the more robust interventions um, that you would have uh, used before the pandemic, um, and that aim to instill the safety, calm, and community that they speak of. For example, connectedness practices that would once have been proffered, um, where you could have small group meetings, face-to-face um, -face encounters, these have become more strained, or at least more cumbersome, as teletechnology or uh, technologies such as Zoom, which mediate connectedness, um, are needed. It becomes, uh, this can be very hard because as trying to connect, you're automatically also encountered with technology that mediates and kind of limits connection, right? It becomes very hard for healthcare workers to eat well, to exercise and sleep, when one cannot get to a good source, uh, to a source of good food, cannot go to the gym or even walk outside in an urban environment, um, can't sleep well when one is overworked and has internalized a crisis, or does not even have time in the midst of the crisis to pursue such practices, not to mention the, the, the psychiatrist or the psychologist themselves who's supposed to model this behavior, how they might not be able to have the wherewithal to have such a balanced life in these crises. Um, even actions such as mindfulness, which I'm very positive toward, um, is very questionable in such situations. How will being mindful of one's situation help when such a situation, for some, borders on the hellish? Um, might mindfulness actually not be appropriate during this time, or might there be other forms of meditation or practices um, that can help one cope without focusing on the present, if the present is so grim? So all of this is not a criticism of the authors who are trying to offer what suggestions they can during times that are far from optimal and where psychological first aid maybe is not yet caught up with the realities of such a crisis as the COVID pandemic. Um, I really actually appreciate this article. And indeed, the authors acknowledge broader cultural or even political context in their paper, such as racism and lack of resources and yet do not offer suggestions on how to deal with these impacts on the environment in which healthcare workers labor during the pandemic. Um, in other words, they don't, uh, in the psychological first aid, they don't include discussions of how you deal with the political conflict, the politics um, that are shot through this pandemic. Well, this might be due for to several reasons. The first is that during an emergency, the authors are right to focus on first aid. Care to the individual in distress is important, and you must make sure the person before you has what they need to keep functioning. The second, however, is that the moral injury literature um, that authors use to define such harm privileges the individual as the commissioner and object of the injury. These formal definitions in the moral injury literature do not take into account, or they lend themselves to, um, lend themselves and maybe kind of um, direct at least theoretically and definitionally, an article to 
toward the individual, and they do not take into account the larger cultural and political contexts in which moral injuries are formed, contexts that are central to the nature of the injury in question. Uh, for example, the authors mention the lack of resource position, provision as a contributor to potentially moral injurious situa situations, but they do not go on to mention how the ongoing debate and conflicts within and between levels of government over those issues can um, help to give rise, can give rise to the moral injury and loss of hope that some may feel. It also does not mention the rise in protests against social distancing measures, protests that healthcare workers have seen as affecting them and whom they care for directly. And basically, these protests wanting to end social distancing and stay-at-home orders that will make that will give rise to suffering death and put them and them in danger uh, put healthcare workers in danger and also really strain their ability to live up to the visions of care um, that they internalized as professionals it also does not mention the rhetoric of the president of the united states members of congress and local and state officials and how that can affect them nor feelings that they have become that healthcare workers may feel that they have become complicit in budget and political decisions around funding, stockpiling, defunding of rural hospitals, and not creating excess capacity for crises um, that have happened uh, before and during the conflict. Uh, because healthcare professionals are the ones who must face the patients. They're the ones who execute the fruit of these policies uh, through poor treatments than they would have uh, otherwise given. They're the ones, somewhat like soldiers, who don't necessarily make policy but execute it. And so personally and physically, um, not only see the fruits of those decisions, but bodily actually have to encounter them. And as nurses and healthcare workers at a, pro uh, as a, at a protest in front of the White House said, and this protest in particular that I have a picture of, we're tired of being treated as if we are expendable. They've also said as if their patients are expendable. Healthcare workers then can feel betrayed by administrators and managers in the broader society. As uh, Alan Schmidt McManus, a clinical social worker in St. Louis, told the New York Times, the betrayal felt by healthcare workers went, quote, beyond trauma, unquote, because they felt, quote, overwhelmed and abandoned uh, by bosses who rarely acknowledged the newly relentless demands of their jobs, unquote. This betrayal, however, can also be felt to come from politicians as well as the broader public, as I mentioned. This is especially the case when the broader public protests against rules that would make the situation better, or when the public votes in, po in politicians who have underfunded institutions and provisions that could have mitigated the effects of the pandemic. Such decisions, both over the long term and the short, can be seen as not just putting oneself in danger, nor even one's patients and colleagues, colleagues but also one's family as well. Again, healthcare workers have to return every day to families, or sometimes even don't see them for weeks on end because of the threat of making not just themselves ill, but their families are at well since they're in contact with the virus so intimately. Again, in the New York Times, one doctor worried about bringing COVID home. And as he gets ready for work every day, he says his son says, quote, Daddy, be very, very careful, unquote, unquote. And he says, I know what my child is thinking. This is an important aspect of moral injury that is related to betrayal, feeling one has been made complicit in a wrong or injustice. 
If bad policies or decision-making puts one's child in danger, it is bad enough. But when one is made the vehicle of that harm, just by doing one's job, it is one's body that is delivering the consequences of bad policy to their child. This is not dirty hands where one makes the best choices they can, knowing they will be doing some amount of wrong in order to do something right and good. This is complicity in endangering one you love, creating a sense both of betrayal, but also feeling one has done or might do the unthinkable. And as to too many patients, as, and as too many patients die, it may even be, seem to seem to have been, not even seem to have been worth the sacrifices made. That there are just too many people who have suffered and died for the sacrifices that healthcare workers have made. This, of course, is an extreme example. Yet in places like New York, New Orleans, Seattle, and maybe many more in the in the coming year, it is a real fear. It is also a level of betrayal that even Shea, who views politics more narrowly in terms of the immediate embeddedness of the soldier in the military hierarchy, does not consider. How, then, should we understand moral injury during such a pandemic as the one we are facing? Well, this is going to be an upcoming discussion, I think, that is, is going to be discussed in bioethics and healthcare ethics as we come to see how uh, the moral harms and challenges that such a pandemic and crisis sh uh, creates. So I just want to lay out a few possible answers responding to some of the issues I brought up that hopefully can spark some uh, discussion and debate. First, I'd say, is we should see moral injury not merely as acute moral distress becoming chronic. Uh, as I've argued that, that uh, Farnsworth uh, and, and the Farnsworth's co-authors have um, suggested. Such a frame makes it seem as if the individual has dealt with their distress poorly or that such injury is their fault, um, which is interesting because uh, Jonathan Shea actually coined the term as moral injury again against, the, uh, against PhD, PTSD, which is described in terms of a disorder, because the disorder language, uh, he thought, is a stigma within the military, and injury is seen as honorable. And so there's a possibility here that I'm saying that um, making it look this way can actually then look uh, possibly as a stigma, since again we're talking in terms of character, virtue, uh, moral agency, which are evaluative terms, not just clinical terms. There's a danger here of falling back into that stigma that Shea discussed. There is, and there is in the literature an unaired and uncritical assumption that one should manage one's distress so as not to become injured, um, at least in some of the uh, moral distress language and in, I, th I think, some of the more clinical um, language used in moral injury discussions. What is not critically reflected upon is whether there are situations where someone who takes responsibility and justice seriously should experience such injury. In other words, are there times when injustice is so egregious and times when one's location within the crisis is such that one is somehow lacking some moral capacity, is morally deficient? Let me, let me say that again. In other words, are there times when injustice is so egregious that if you do not feel some degree of moral injury, is that itself an indication that one might be lacking some moral capacity is somehow morally deficient. Are there times where if, if, if you're not getting feeling some sort of injury, are you not really understanding 
the moral seriousness, to, to uh, uh, grab a phrase from uh, philosopher Raymond Gaeta, are you not really understanding the moral seriousness? Are you not actually being responsible? Are you not engaging as you should be? Um, when we look at the larger cultural and political context, we can see that in the pandemic, matters not just of psychological health, but of justice and social justice are profound aspects of the crisis and of the experience of healthcare workers within this crisis. Indeed, the United States quickly became the epicenter of the crisis, not simply because it was a global pandemic, but importantly because of political decisions regarding preparedness, healthcare policy, and healthcare funding and financing, and as well as the ongoing battle of the nature of health insurance um, that have all taken care, that have all taken place over the last decade. This was exacerbated by the way in which government leadership responded to the crisis as it unfolded. Um, as many, and I would agree, uh, at least on the federal level, uh, really got in the way of responding to the crisis. Someone who takes responsibility and justice seriously may not be able to help uh, feel, but feel may not be able to help but feel deeply at this situation and its political dimensions. Um, this is a a call that coming from the clinical side, which was looking at health and, um, health and well-being, are we too ready to look at moral injury as something that needs to be cured and addressed or stop, stopped? Is that moral and moral injury perhaps bringing up, um, is, is, is suggesting to us perhaps that um, moral injury is actually a sign of somebody who is responsible has a certain character and is looking at the, 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 the moral dimension of the crisis seriously, maybe we could say it's a loaded term, but even accurately. Second then, this possibility rests better if we see moral injury not as a diagnosis then, but as something else. Uh, since Litz and, Litz and his co-authors published their article in 2009, their seminal article, there are already a number of scales and tests to try and diagnose moral injury, as well as various therapeutic strategies to create healing. It is unclear, however, whether a diagnostic scale or survey um, is sufficient for a form of harm that is not um, just psychological, but is instead referred to as moral and spiritual. Uh, in other words, this is taking the, the, the coining of moral injury, the moral coining, seriously. We're speaking here, after all, of a very subjective experience. There is no objective set of principles or code applicable to all that has been transgressed in any given moral injury. The overall literature assumes that it's one's own values that are transgressed, and one must also feel as if it has been transgressed. So this is very, uh, a very subjective framing um, and definition. And it almost seems as if one needs to come to name their suffering a moral injury by themselves, or at the very least in par partnership with a therapist or possibly someone else. Indeed, morality is such that it would be very difficult to conclude who has the authority to really diagnose one's moral or spiritual state. Um, it's quite an assumption to say that one can do this with the use of a, a clinical psychological uh, scale or instrument. Even with a scale or measure, we are approaching here territory where terms such as virtue and character and wisdom may be better suited than the clinical language that has been used. If we see moral injury then not as di diagnosis in need of a clinical intervention, we may be able to see at least some examples of moral injury 
as a sign not just that specific individuals are suffering, but indeed that one society is in need of repair. Um, that the individual is re reflecting that something is going wrong um, in their uh, larger group, community, institution, nation, possibly the world. Um, Martin Luther King, uh, in, in some of his writing, had said that he does not believe that people should be well-adjusted to an unjust society. May moral injury be such signs of that um, maladjustment that possibly um, in a responsible character may um, require of individuals during unjust times. If, however, there are political dimensions to such an injury, we can perhaps see such an injury as respect reflecting a real response, maybe even a visceral insight into the conditions and injustices of one's day or the moment. And if there is a political dimension, responsible responses to such an injury may require actions beyond the therapeutic. Third, then, I would argue here that moral injury can be seen in a more epistemological frame, let's say. Unlike PTSD, uh, where one can actually forget the cause of the trauma or have troubles with memory, moral injury usually revolves around a quite clear memory of the cause of the suffering. People can feel that they're haunted by what they've done. They remember, uh, maybe what, what they remember actually is overwhelming, can take over their life. One has seen and experienced things that have changed the way they see and understand themselves in the world, possibly forever. It is to use a loaded term, but perhaps new knowledge, even if not wanted, um, can be at the heart of moral injury and that can change one quite deeply. And if it involves issues of justice and injustice, of wrong and reconciliation, such moral injuries could also provide a basis for prophetic insight. As one has seen more keenly into the man's of the present moment, they've been there in person, bodily. Their senses have experienced um, what's going on prophetic insight that they may ha have and that others may not because they've not had the same experience. Um, and then the question then becomes from moral injury, what to do with that, um, with that potential insight? How do you um, use that at the heart of your moral injury to heal yourself and perhaps others? I do not want to say that all moral injury is like this, even though I do think that it's, it's hard in these contexts to lose entirely an understanding of how politics in some way helps frame the conditions for moral injury. But instead, what I want to do is to try and think through what it might mean to acknowledge a form of moral and psychological harm conditioned significantly by the political. I use political here again to signify not only policymaking, though that's true, but also the power maneuvers between community and state leaders that affect well-being. Um, or the common good, if you wanted to put it in, in common good language, and also the power maneuvers within one's culture over which narratives are hegemonic, which stories, um, power maneuvers over which stories will be told and acknowledged, and whose will not be. In the case of the current pandemic, it is hard to see the suffering and deaths without also acknowledging how deeply the crisis has been shaped by the culture wars, policies, and politics of the United States, as well as other countries and uh, transnational institutions. A moral injury that results from the pandemic then will to some extent also be a political injury, where one has been harmed not only through the spread of a virus, but how that spread and our reactions to it were formed through discourses and practices of power and lack of power. 
A moral injury then has the potential at least to provide some prophetic insight into the pandemic, pandemic and even one society. Such injury can arise in many ways, but if we take politics seriously in the shaping of such an injury, the injured have experienced the, the effects of such politics. They have a unique relationship to those politics then, and if reflected on critically, um, and for some perhaps theologically, could serve as a prophetic voice informed by that very experience of the way that the political has affected the lives of patients, healthcare workers, and communities. In other words, somebody is not just injured, they're not just a patient or a victim, they may have something very important to offer if we see moral injury not as something done to someone, but as something that has transformed one. What then do we do with this transformation, especially if this transformation offers insight into possible injustices in the larger society, those injustices that conditioned the moral injury in the first place? Repair then, moral repair, would require not only therapeutic interventions, which I want to say is important. I'm not arguing against clinical or therapeutic health. I think they're essential. But what might be missing is some political engagement as a form of repair. And that can happen in any manner of ways. In, in other writing I've done, I've showed some ways that soldiers and veterans have undertaken such engagement, uh, which has ranged from trying to educate the public to direct activism. Such work usually occurs after one's military service is over, as such activism, even minimally, is quickly and easily curtailed through the military hierarchy. Something similar exists for the healthcare worker in the midst of pandemic, as so much of their time and energy is involved in caring for patients, families, and colleagues. There is little time to do much else. Uh, and so I'm not saying here that this should be taken up as what we said, the psychological first aid, but in the aftermath of the crises, when, uh, when you really sit and can better reflect on what's happening, sometimes that injury is felt more. That might be the more of the time to engage in this kind of personal therapy that's also perhaps social therapy. Um, at the same time, even though I want to reserve that, there are exceptions to kind of postponing this. Um, healthcare workers in several states uh, have conducted counter-protests against groups calling for the lifting of social distancing and stay-at-home advisories, uh, such as the closing of businesses. This has happened at the height of the pandemic, uh, of the pandemic in the last few months. In Phoenix, Arizona, for example, which this picture, which this, this picture shows, nurses stood on the steps in their scrubs, hands folded, and masks on, socially distancing, in contradistinction to the protesters who neither had masks nor were distancing safely, kind of doing a counter-protest in front of the state capital. This also occurred in Colorado, where healthcare workers, also in scrubs, masks, and socially distancing, stood in an intersection to counter a protest in the state hospital. These are examples of nurses pushing back against certain narratives that see the COVID pandemic as a conspiracy theory and to try to educate protesters and onlookers about the seriousness of what healthcare workers are doing. In other words, they took the, po uh, the political activism into their own hands, even when the pandemic was going on, both for themselves, for their patients, and also for their co-workers. Indeed, there may be a need for healthcare workers to find ways to live out their injuries in the future that um, are more politically engaging. For many veterans, as I said, they do not become aware of the injury until after deployment. 
the aftermath can and will be a time when healthcare workers, uh, even those who don't necessarily feel like they've been morally injured during the pandemic, they may start feeling that as life goes on afterward. Um, as Mark Rosenberg uh, at St. Joseph's Health in Patterson, New Jersey has said, quote, as the pandemic intensity seems to fade, so does the adrenaline. What's left are the emotions of dealing with trauma and stress of the many patients we cared for. There is a wave of depression, letdown, true PTSD, and a feeling of not caring anymore, anymore for what is coming, end quote. I would also add to this possibly a wave of moral injury. This is occurring now and will only grow in the near future, especially as more waves of COVID are set to grow in the late summer, fall, and winter. These feelings of being at the whim of political pressures and decisions, and a feeling that one has insights that are being ignored in power and budgetary struggles at all levels of government, and including one's hospital environment, may require more than therapeutic interventions, but may require political responses to match the political dimension of the pandemic. My apologies, I had some technical difficulties right here toward the end. Um, but basically, just what I wanted to say, though, is that uh, healthcare workers may need for themselves, and maybe we may need also from them, um, which is a hard thing to, to ask, but may require political responses to match the political dimension of the pandemic. Not all, and there are various ways um, that this can be done. Not everyone needs to be at a protest. Um, it can be done in a lot of different ways, even just talking to a friend. Um, but for some, more direct actions will will be necessary to get them a sense of, of, of agency again. This may require organizing and networks of solidarity, where healthcare workers not work not only to treat the patient in front of them, but to advocate and fight for the budgets and resources that make the best of care possible. Uh, maybe something more along the lines of um, social work models and social work ethics. When we think then of bioethics and moral injury in the time of COVID, we may need a political vocabulary to add to our ethical and clinical ones, using terms such as prophetic speech and knowledge, solidarity, organizing, protest, and, <laughs> and even coercion. This will allow healthcare workers not just to treat their personal feelings of shame, anger, guilt, and betrayal, but also feel an empowerment to change the conditions that gave rise to such injury, and perhaps also help us um, help those in the larger society see some things that they have yet not seen. Thank you so much. That was Moral Injury in the Time of COVID by Dr. Joseph Wenneke Leiden of Wake Forest University. This talk was originally presented as a plenary address at CBHD's 2020 conference, Bioethics in Real Life, Lessons We're Learning from COVID-19. For more information about our 2021 conference, Bioethics in the Body, coming up online and possibly in person, June 24 through 26, visit cbhd.org and click on Conference at the top of the page. Early bird registration is open until March 1. Save $50. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, 
has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center, projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. All post-production for the Bioethics Podcast is done by CBHD Communications and Marketing Manager, Annalise Troll. My name is Matthew Epinet, and I'm the Executive Director at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast. 